the saved would be sanctified and equipped and mobilized for ministry for the glory of God. In the good of innumerable souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the psalmist says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. That's always true, but there's a special gladness when you're at the house of the Lord with the Harvest family. And uh, it's just a joy to be with you this morning, and it's been refreshing to be with you in worship. I'm glad uh, to be here, uh, not just because of the uh, years-long friendship now that we have had together, but to be able to watch what the Lord is doing um, in your uh, church and uh, under the ministry of Pastor Dale and your elders and the other pastors on staff. You know, sometimes uh, when the Lord blesses us, this isn't uncharacteristic of God's people through history. When the Lord's blessing us and uh, we are tasting His blessings, uh, we can sometimes not know how unique that is. And I want you to know that what you have and what the Lord is doing here and what you have in your pastor and what you have in your leadership is pretty special throughout our church and throughout the church. So I hope that you are able on a regular basis to thank the Lord for His grace and to pray for your leaders and to pray for your church. And I especially mentioning prayer, want to commend uh, what was... uh, um, announced before the service start, I wasn't put up to this, um, the prayer meeting that you're going to have, I've recently in my own uh, study of the scripture been pouring through the book of Acts again, and it's interesting to me, very significant, the priority that not only prayer takes, but the priority that earnest prayer by the body gathered takes. When the Lord works in Scripture and in history, it is often in the context of earnest prayer by the assembled church. And so I want to encourage you to do what you can to find a way to be present at this opportunity to commune with the living God together that your leadership has given to you. Well, that's not where my sermon is this morning. That's just a, that's an aside, that's a freebie. But I'd like to invite you, if you would, to take, please turn in your copy of the Scriptures to Romans chapter 10. I'd like to read in your hearing Romans 10, 1 to 17, and then we're going to spend some time getting into this passage and letting the Lord speak to us through it. Romans 10, verses 1 to 17, please listen as I read in your hearing the Word of our God. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Samuel Miller was one of the fathers of the Orthodox American Presbyterian movement. 1835, he delivered an address titled, The Earth Filled with the Glory of the Lord. And in it, he expressed a great vision for the advance of Christ's cause throughout the world. Here's what Samuel Miller said. In the great work of evangelizing the whole world... Our plans and efforts for promoting this object ought to be large, liberal, and ever-expanding. When we direct our attention to the spread of the gospel, our views, our prayers, our efforts are all too stinted and narrow. We scarcely ever lift our eyes to see the real grandeur and claims of the enterprise in which we profess to be engaged. We are too apt to be satisfied with small, occasional contributions of service to this greatest of all causes, instead of devoting to it hearts truly enlarged, instead of desiring great things, instead of expecting great things, praying for great things, and nurturing in our spirits that holy elevation of sentiment and affection which embraces in its desires and prayers the entire kingdom of God. Romans 10 is one of the great worldview-forming passages of Scripture where that vision that Samuel Miller gave to us is made compellingly clear. Paul has written this whole great letter to secure the church's commitment to his apostolic mission, sending him on his apostolic mission to places he has not yet been. He's not yet personally met the church in Rome. So in his letter, the letter to the Romans, he describes his glorious gospel message entrusted to him by Christ on his mission. And in Romans chapter 10, he brings together his compulsion on Christ's mission, his confidence in Christ's message, and his commitment to Christ's method. That's where we pick up the life and ministry transforming reality in this passage. If your heart is compelled in Christ's mission, have confidence in His message and be committed to His method. If your heart is compelled in Christ's mission, have confidence in His message and be committed to His method. First, Verse 1 shows us a heart compelled in Christ's mission. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. 
Here we've got a revelation of what moves the heart of of Jesus' Spirit-inspired spokesman. The one who speaks for Jesus by the inspiration of the Spirit has a heart for the salvation of people. Christ's servant was motivated by a desire that overflowed in prayer to God for the salvation of unrighteous people. In this case, people who were trusting their own man-made righteousness, his own kinsman, Israel. The affection of his inner being was stirred for the eternal good of unrighteous people. And that affection got expressed in a desired prayer asking God to save them. Now this little Spirit-inspired testimony becomes more compelling when we notice where it appears in the book of Romans. This is the first thing that he was led to write after chapter 9. And you say, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. Why is that compelling? Because chapter 9 is where he has described and defended the glorious doctrine of sovereign election. In chapter 9, he has exhibited and extolled the glory of God in his sovereign determination of who receives his mercy and who will be vessels of wrath. We call that the doctrine of election. That's chapter 9. So now chapter 10, verse 1, he writes, Therefore, because God is sovereign in salvation, I'm not really moved one way or the other whether people get saved. It's all predetermined anyway. I just don't care. I recall being part of a team that was interviewing somebody for a ministry position. And uh, it was clear as we interviewed this person for the ministry position that they were, in terms of uh, academic understanding, head and shoulders above me for sure, and many other people on the team that was interviewing them. And we began to ask the person about a frontline evangelistic ministry they told us they were involved in. And had they seen any fruit? And their face became consciously apathetic. And they looked at us and said, no no fruit. Like, why should that bother me? He had taken the glorious biblical truth that all fruit is God's sovereign prerogative to mean he could be apathetic about the salvation of the people he claimed to be evangelizing. There is a subtle insidious temptation for us who delight in the biblical doctrines of sovereign grace to co-opt our theology to insulate our complacency. Rather than being moved, rather than being committed from the heart to bring in a harvest of souls for the glory of God. Here's John Murray. Commenting on this verse. Here we have a lesson of profound import. Our attitude to men is not to be governed by God's secret counsel concerning them. It is this lesson and distinction involved that are so eloquently inscribed in the Apostle's passion for the salvation of his kinsmen. Listen to this. We violate the order of human thought and trespass the boundary between God's prerogative and man's when the truth of God's sovereign counsel constrains despair or abandonment of concern in the eternal interests of men. 
Now, lest you think, John, you're, you're, just, you're just making too much of one verse. There's another verse where Paul exposes what's on his heart. It's before he defends sovereign election. Romans chapter 9, verse 2. Here's what he says. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and kinsmen according to the flesh. And it's not just his kinsmen according to the flesh that he's concerned about. In fact, he bookends the whole epistle with declarations of his passion for his mission. Listen to chapter 1, verse 13 to 15. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then he ends the epistle this way in chapter 15, 15. He summarizes his ministry this way, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Listen, the Holy Spirit has given us a window into the heart of the servant who spoke for Jesus. And what fueled his heart, what fueled his mission, was to see God's saving purpose fulfilled amongst all people. He was, he was passionate about an innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation giving eternal praise to the glory of God. And in our compulsion to insulate our comfort zone, we can ignore the fact that this passion compelled our fathers in the Reformed faith. Here's John Calvin. Indeed, nothing could be more inconsistent with the nature of faith than that deadness which would lead a man to disregard his brethren and keep the light of knowledge choked up within his own breast. Here's Thomas Boston. But alas, I may come with my complaints to the Lord that I have toiled in some measure but caught nothing. For anything I know as to the conversion of one soul, I fear I may say I have almost spent my strength in vain and my labor for naught, for Israel is not gathered. Therefore did my heart cry out after Christ this day, and my soul was moved when I read the sweet promise of Christ, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Oh, how fain would my soul follow him as on other accounts as this, that I might be honored to be a fisher of men. One more. Archibald Alexander, another father of the Orthodox Presbyterian movement in the 19th century, said, If the Christian church felt her obligations to her Lord and Redeemer as she ought, the whole body would be like a great missionary society whose chief object was to spread the gospel over the world. Here's the point. A biblical ministry... A biblically reformed church will be from the heart compelled on Christ's mission. The Christ-authorized, Spirit-inspired mission 
to save innumerable souls for the glory of God will capture the heart and compel us to invest our lives so that they may be saved. And that heart for that mission flows from and results in confidence in Christ's message. That's the second point this morning. Confidence in Christ's message. That's what we see in verses 2 to 13. Verses 2 to 13. In verse 2 to 13, the apostle gives us a compact, glorious description and defense of the message that Jesus entrusted to him. And with complex, razor-sharp argumentation, he defends his message as growing right out of the scriptures that God gave to Israel. Now, for the sake of, the, of time, in a one-off sermon like this, let me just give you the tweetable version of what he says in verses 2 to 13. Listen. Acquittal of guilt and acceptance with God is based not on your works of righteousness, but on Christ alone received by faith alone. It's not about your religious background. It's not about your moral performance. It's not about your social status. It's not about your ethnic roots. No matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, or who your people are, acquittal of guilt and acceptance with God is based not on your work at righteousness, but on Christ alone. Received by faith alone. Because Christ, Revealed in the Scriptures is God's righteousness for everyone who believes. Here's a brief description and defense of that message. Verses 2 to 14. Pardon me, 2 to 4. The people on his heart and in his prayers are disobediently unrighteous because they trust their own self-made righteousness rather than righteousness that God alone gives. You see, there's a, there's a futile and a false righteousness that humans seek to create through their own character and their own works. A human, man-made righteousness. John Murray said that the greatest enemy of the gospel is not human unrighteousness. It's human righteousness. There's a righteousness that gets us acquitted of our guilt and accepted before God. And there is a righteousness that we try to create for ourselves. And our problem is that rather than believing and submitting to the gospel message, we would rather be zealous for the righteousness we can create for ourselves. And religious people do it, and secular people do it. Religious people do it by trusting in their religious activity, their zeal for following the form and for the social code and for their morally acceptable performance. Secular people do it by the shame and shun guilt culture of the new morality that is supposedly on the this right side of history. And it doesn't matter what your system of righteousness is, just because you're zealous for it doesn't get you acquitted and accepted with God. And the point of verses 2 to 4 is that the righteousness of God, the righteousness that leads to salvation, is the righteousness of Jesus 
alone, imputed to us as a gift of grace by God alone, through faith alone. So the believer has said, righteousness is Jesus Christ. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Believers say, I am done with attempting to perform my own righteousness before God. I cling to Christ and to Christ alone. And then verses 5 to 8, Paul says, that message actually grows right out of the Old Testament Scriptures you have in front of you. There are two Old Testament passages that are woven through his argument, Leviticus 18.5 and Deuteronomy 30, 12-14. And the point in accessing them is that even Moses revealed the righteousness through faith, and that speaks of the message that we proclaim. The point is that despite Israel's resistance to the message of righteousness through faith in Christ, God revealed it. Moses said to them, the word is near you. Despite your objections, well, you have to go into heaven to get it, or you have to go to the grave to bring it up. No, Christ has come down. Christ has been raised after he lived a perfectly obedient life and died a substitute death for sinners. Christ, whom we proclaim, is the revelation of God's righteousness. That's the word of faith that we proclaim. And all a sinner has to do to receive Him as their righteousness is believe in Him. That's the point of verses 9 to 13. He goes to Scripture again. Isaiah 28, 16. Joel 2, 32. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the glorious good news of the Gospel message. God counts us as righteous, justified, and saves us if we simply believe in Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Listen, how does this Scripture revealed justifying, saving righteousness through Christ become mine? Believe in Jesus Christ raised from the dead. No, 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 wait a minute. Hang on. You don't know what I've done. Now, you, don't, you, don't, you don't know my background. You don't know my people. You don't know what the system I came from. There has to be spiritual hurdles to jump over. There's got to be sacrificial hoops to crawl through. There has to be some hocus-pocus that I have to perform. No! The Scripture says, believe in Jesus raised from the dead and God will give you the righteousness of Christ. Believe in your heart, really, sincerely, personally that Jesus is Lord and that faith will come out of your mouth you confess that Christ is Lord not because confession is a work that you add to faith but because if you believe it's going to come out Jesus is my righteousness Paul started this declaration of, of the, this letter with a declaration of his confidence I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to some of those who believe. To those who believe from a particular background. To those who believe if they haven't committed these kinds of sins. No. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone 
who believes. That's Christ's message. And that's the message we have to have confidence in in Christ's mission. That's the message that is sufficient. The church constantly wants to play with the message. Christians, believers, want to play with the message. Water it down, accommodate it, uh, contextualize it, change it so it's more relevant, more successful. The message is Christ from all of Scripture is the righteousness of God for everyone who will believe. That message is the power of God for salvation. And if we're compelled on Christ's mission, and we're confident in Christ's message, we will be committed to Christ's method. That's verses 14 to 17. Paul asks four practical theology questions. Four pastoral theology questions. Notice what he asks. How are they to call on him, call on him in whom they do not believe? How are they to believe him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Those are the four questions that come out of a heart to get that glorious good news out to as many people as possible. How does this gospel get out? How does this salvation power justifying gospel get out? How do the ignorant who are resisting it, how do the unrighteous who are disobeying it, those who don't believe it, how do the people get the the gospel? Well, the Spirit-inspired answer is this. Christ sends a preacher... The preacher preaches Christ, the people hear Christ, they believe Christ, they call on Christ, everyone who calls is saved. During the Reformation period, the church in France was undergoing profound persecution and it needed pastors, it needed leaders. And as John Calvin desired the Reformation and the mission to move forward in his land, he wrote to them and he said this, in the need for pastors. Send us your wood and we'll send them back arrows. He called the preachers of the gospel the sacred army in Christ's cause. You see, if this little sequence of methodological questions teaches us nothing nothing else, it shows us the priority of preaching and sending preachers in Christ's cause. Listen, not because we're nostalgic about the traditions of the past and we're stuck in outmoded means of communication, not because prioritizing preaching is a particularly reformed thing, and not because certain pastors have a penchant and a gift for preaching. No, we prioritize preaching and sending preachers because that's how Christ Himself gets His work done in people's lives. Did you notice when we were reading the text, verse 14, we skipped over the little of in the ESV? And you thought, well, Curry needs new glasses, or he briefly fell asleep in his own sermon? But it was actually quite deliberate because the option of translation given to you in the footnote of the ESV is a better translation. How are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? Paul knows it's actually Him, it's actually Christ that they hear. They hear Him, they believe Him when the Scriptures are faithfully preached. 
So down in verse 17, when he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ isn't just the word about Christ. It's actually Christ's word. The word that Christ speaks. Do you remember Jesus' first sermon that's recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke in his home synagogue of Nazareth? And he stood up and he gave his mode of ministry. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And the next day his disciples tried to reorder his public agenda and he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Listen, Jesus was sent as the preacher to preach. And after his cross, before he was exalted to the Father's right hand, he gave this method of mission to his disciples, preach. Luke 24 says, that He walked with them, and from the law and the Psalms and the prophets, He opened up everything concerning Himself, namely that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, preached to all nations. You are witnesses of these things. Do you know Jesus didn't stop preaching when He ascended to the right hand of the Father? The Apostle Paul, when he defends his ministry to King Agrippa in Acts 26, says this, listen carefully, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying that nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That, listen to this, that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and the Gentiles. Christ would proclaim post-resurrection. How does he do that? Through preachers like Paul that he sent. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 2, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he came and preached to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one. Christ came and preached to those who were far off. How did Jesus come and preach to Gentiles? Through the preachers that he gave and sent. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 it says that when the ascended Christ... Is ascended to the right hand of the Father, He gave gifts to men. And the gifts that He gave to the church were the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Preachers. To preach the gospel to the lost, to preach the gospel to the, to the saved, to get the lost saved and to get the saved sanctified in Jesus. When the Scripture says that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ, the Holy Spirit is telling us that in the preaching of Christ from the Scriptures, Christ preaches still. That's why the word preached has the power to raise the dead. That's why the word preached has the power to grow infant saints into Christ-like sons. That's why Jesus still sends heralds to proclaim the good news. That's why B.B. Warfield said this to his students for the ministry. He called them the angels preparing to sound the trumpet. Warfield said this, angels preparing to sound the trumpets, take the name to yourselves, live up to it, give your days and nights to living up to it, and then perhaps when you come to sound the trumpets, the note will be pure and clear and strong and perchance may even pierce the grave and wake the dead. My friends, the church in this generation and the next needs a whole army of prepared, trained heralds and preachers. The church in this generation and the next needs a whole army of men 
who are Christ-centered, Spirit-filled, mission-driven, Scripture-expositing heralds of the Word of God. The nations need an army of preachers who are confident in the Gospel and who are compelled by Christ's mission. So here's the question. Is there some, some of you here today who are maybe called the sacred army? And would you allow me to all ask each of you this question? Where's your heart with Christ? Are you resting in Him and His righteousness alone for acceptance before God? Or are you sort of maybe partly counting on your zeal for the religious code? Or that you are more socially put together than the rest of some folks in society? If you're not resting in Christ and His righteousness alone, today is the day. Believe in Jesus Christ raised from the dead alone as your righteousness. Are you committed to your own comfort? And all of the comforts that living in this part of the world with this kind of peace and freedom and affluence can get us? Are we committed to our own comfort or are we compelled by Christ's cause? And if you would know Him more, and if you would make Him known more, are you committed to sending the arrows? Are you committed to getting the Word out? Does the preaching of the Word of God have priority in your life? Does the preaching of the Word of God have priority in your ministry, in your church? and in the cause that you're committed to. If your heart is compelled in Christ's mission, have confidence in His message, and be committed to His method. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how glorious and great you are that you would order and plan salvation for sinners that you would send your son that in him you would accomplish all that is necessary for the salvation of your people and then Lord by your spirit you would send messengers throughout the ages around the world. And Lord, we would pray that from this church and others like it, that you would raise up a new generation of the sacred army of heralds of the Word of God. And Lord, we would pray that if there would be one here today who as yet is not trusting Jesus alone, that you would give that gift of grace, that gift of repentance and faith, and turn them to Christ. And then, Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless the ministry of the word that goes from this pulpit and this church. We pray, Lord, that it would not only be faithful, but that it would be fruitful in gathering in the harvest to the eternal praise of our glorious God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's conclude our worship together by responding to that glorious gospel message and
declaring our wonder that we're included, would you stand with me as we sing, And Can It Be That I Should Gain?
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.